We're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 1, as it says up on the screen. But first let me pray, and then I'll read it. Lord Jesus, please be with us tonight. Please be with me. Please help me to speak clearly. Please help me to speak from your word. Please, by your spirit, use what I say. By your spirit, please make our hearts responsive. By your spirit, show us what we need to know about ourselves and about you. Train us and rebuke us and equip us and encourage us and build us up that we will glorify your name. Amen. Malachi chapter 1, then. Page 960, if there's a Bible on a church seat near you. And I'll read that. From verse 6. A son honours his father, and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me? If I'm a master... Where's the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. So this is the third Sunday in our series on Malachi. Let me remind you of the context of the book. Malachi is late in the timeline of the Old Testament. God has long ago established a covenant with his people, with Abraham's descendants. He brought them out of Egypt by his mighty power with signs and wonders. He established them in Israel, the promised land. He raised up a line of kings for them. Kings 
through whom he promised to bless Israel, to bless the whole world. And that kingdom rapidly became a regional superpower. Through King Solomon, he established a temple, a place on earth where, in some sense, the mighty, omnipresent creator, sovereign Lord Yahweh, was yet approachable and specially present. A place where the people of the earth could somehow come and encounter him, know him, and bring their sacrifices and worship. There was this promise of true religion, of a people living daily life in covenant relationship with a living God. And then it all goes wrong. The nation's kings go astray pretty much from the start. And as the leaders wander, so do the people. They abandon relationship with God. And when they do that, they bring down his judgment. The kingdom splits in two, Israel and Judah. And first one, then the other are carried off into exile. Seventy years later, dribs and drabs of the Jewish people are called to return. A remnant of the people is redeemed, brought back to the promised land. And with great hopes, they start to rebuild the walls of the city. They start to rebuild their nation and their temple. But it's all a bit naff. This new temple, it's not a patch on the original. They've lost most of their people. There are loads of other people groups in the land with them. They're not even sovereign. They're just a province that's getting kicked about by the big boys. They've got a foreign governor over them. And Malachi is speaking somewhere into that disappointing rebuilding process. We don't know quite when. My guess is it's somewhere quite late on. The temple seems to be more or less done. But Malachi is speaking to God's people when their experience of God and of religion is disappointing. They seem to be growing disillusioned. Perhaps they're asking, are we really a people loved by God? I mean, look at our recent history. Daniel spoke to that last week from verses 2 to 5. Or perhaps they're asking, is there any point to this system of worship we've got? Verse 9 of our passage says, yeah, they're struggling to see any blessing from God in response to their sacrifices. Look at verses 12 and 13. They're beginning to wonder if their, their old religion is just some ridiculous burden that they should discard. As we read on in the coming weeks through the rest of the book, we'll see that they've already moved away from much of God's teachings. Like their forefathers, they've strayed from his conception of faithfulness and covenant. They've shifted away from his model of justice. They've moved away from his model of giving and even from expecting him to provide for them. They've lost it. Their religion is disappointing and discouraged. It's dying. It feels worthless. And Malachi, God's messenger, speaks into that. So as we saw last week, 
God says in verse 2, I have loved you. I've not changed. My covenant stands. I love my people. Actually, if you look at other nations, if you see how they're being judged while you're being rebuilt, you'll see that I love my people. And you'll say, like in verse 5, Great is the Lord. He's sovereign beyond Israel. So if God loves them, why is everything pence? Well, next he speaks to them and their failings. So first, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he addresses the priesthood, their leaders. We'll look at the first part of that tonight. But then he broadens it out in 3 and 4, and he addresses the whole people. And I think the heart of the accusation is this. They've lost sight of who their God is. That's why their worship is falling flat. That's why their conception of justice is collapsing. That's why they're not tithing faithfully, and it's why they're not living, expecting God's provision. They've lost sight of who he is. Look at verse 6. A son honours his father. But God is, is much more than a father to Israel. He brought their people into being. He, he nurtured them. He grew them into a nation. He's established them and taught them. And he's disciplined and punished them. Yes, but it's like children. Bringing them to maturity. He sustained them through centuries. But where's the honour due to him? A slave respects his master. But, but God is so much more than a master to them. He redeemed them from Egypt and then again from exile. He bought them as a people for himself. He bound them to him with the covenant, with the law as a pattern for their behaviour, with gracious provision and protection. They're his. But where's the respect due to him? Rather, he says, contempt has been shown for his name. And as is the pattern in Malachi, they, they ask, how? How have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on his altar. And again, the priest's response in verse 7, how have we defiled you? Look, we're, we're bringing you sacrifices. We're burdened by it in verse 13. Day after day, week after week, what more do you want? Israel was supposed to give back to God the first fruits of their labour. The first and the best from their flocks or, or from their crops or vineyards. They were supposed to give over to him their best and most valuable produce. Not to support a greedy elite. And not because God somehow wanted grain or meat. He says elsewhere that their burnt offerings in themselves are meaningless to now the point was that by giving their best, Israel could be taught and reminded that their God was worth costly sacrifice. He was better than what they were giving up. In fact, as they expressed their gratitude to him, he had already poured out gracious blessings on them, unlike any other God. 
And he would continue to. Beyond any price they could pay. To sacrifice well was to make a statement about the name of their God. He is glorious. He is great in Israel. He deserves this and more because he's given us this and more. And as well as that, it was to request patience and forgiveness for when they slipped, remembering this is the God who is rich in love, gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, who removes his people's transgressions. To sacrifice well was to remember who their God is, to honour his name. Sacrifice anything less than their best would be meaningless then. It would be to forget everything that had come from God in the first place. And to bring him worthless or sick animals, that was outright prescribed. How could that represent the love of God? How could that teach the people around them what it meant to be part of the Lord's covenant? It was cheating God. It was showing crude disdain for his name rather than gratitude. But it seems by now, somewhere along the line, the priesthood has lost sight of that. Perhaps it came from weakness in leadership. Perhaps a few people began to bring dodgy stuff to the temple and no one dared challenge it. No one dared chastise them or set them straight. Maybe it was too socially awkward, maybe they were powerful, who knows? Or, or maybe the priests just weren't confident in their own authority and so a bad precedent was set. Or maybe it came from a gradual slip. As the people who in verse 2 can't see how God has loved them, as they find it hard to pick out his blessings in their lives, And then they grow more and more discouraged and see less and less value in giving to a a remote God. When these are things that they could trade for a healthy profit. Things that they could put to use for something practical. Well, probably it was a lack of clear teaching. A failure of the priests to maintain amongst themselves a clear knowledge of the Lord or to maintain that among their people so that they simply did not treasure his ways or burn for his glory. After all, if you don't have an intimate knowledge of God, why would you give him your all in worship? If he's just a remote God with limited blessings, why bother to reserve the finest lamb for If he's just one of many national idols, with no reign beyond Israel's shrinking borders, then what's the use of sacrifice? Or if you can't see his love, if it's temporary or changeable or questionable, you are better off reserving your finest produce for more reliable purposes. Somewhere along the line, it's become the norm to bring sacrifice, not the land's finest produce, but the least valuable. All that you can spare, 
rather than all that you cherish. And to Israel as a people, the sacrificial system, it's become in verse 12, 13, defiled, contemptible, a useless burden that doesn't bring grace. Their sacrifices achieve nothing. Their worship's useless. It's dead. And so, verses 7 and 8. Every time that they defiled the Lord's altar, every time that all they were prepared to give up was their worst, their least precious, the sick and blind and lame animals that they didn't want to breed, that they didn't even want to eat themselves, every time that all they were prepared to give to the Lord was the dregs, they said the Lord's table was contemptible. They defiled his name. And verse 8 is telling. They know what they're doing. Hey Israel, would, would you even give this stuff to a Gentile governor? Of course not. Who do you really fear? What do you really want to curry favour with? The power here, now, or the Lord? You could say it was the people's fault. The priests asked, how have we defiled you, God? But they're especially guilty. They're the ones who've allowed the people to come and make those sacrifices. They're the ones who failed to chastise and correct them and send them away. They've not held the Lord's altar in the highest respect. They failed to teach the people to hold God in a higher place than anything else. They can't expect God to respond to it. Look at verse 9. Would God accept such offerings as this? Will he be gracious in response to them? They just don't know who they're dealing with, do they? They're not honouring a father. They're not respecting a master. The, the God that they're worshipping, he's only worth diseased animals. He's only worth the drudgery of traditional sacrifice. But do you see what Malachi emphasises? Seven times in this small stretch he calls God the Lord Almighty. The ruling governor of the whole world. How could their offerings be be satisfying to him? How could they bring him favour, bring his favour? That's the opposite. In verse 10, God's response. We close the doors. Shut them out of my presence. I'll accept nothing from them. They don't know me. They don't please me. And so, in verses 11 to 14, if they carry on this way, they can have no part in his promise. It's not that they'll thwart his plans, of course. Just as in verse 5, they should be able to see the Lord's great beyond the borders of Israel. In verse 11, God insists his name will be great among the nations from east to west, even if Israel failed to worship him. His rule will be established. His name will be known. And those who know him will bring incense and pure offerings. He's going to be worshipped because his name is great amongst the nations. 
But verse 12, those who profane his name, those who consider his table polluted, his worship pointless, only worth a blemished animal, they are counting themselves out of his kingdom. They bear his curse. Because he's a great king. His name is to be feared among the nations. They've lost sight of the name of their God. They don't know him or his character or his holiness or his authority. They've forgotten and devalued their relationship to him. And it's because they don't see him clearly that their worship is dead. So brothers and sisters, what's the state of our worship? It would be tempting in our culture to just apply this to ourselves, but Malachi is writing to a people. He's speaking to a whole community, so we should think about this together as a church or as churches. What's the state of our worship? There's a challenge here to the leaders, to us elders and we who preach and teach and others who, who shape what we do. Are we a church that clearly communicates and models and shows the reality about God? If you're just visiting and you conclude that we're not, go elsewhere. We're not good enough. Does the way that we live demonstrate his character? Is the glorious gospel of Christ richly embedded in our teaching, in our Sunday services, in our home groups, in our routines? Are we the kind of church that would be brave enough to lovingly challenge brothers and sisters when their worship doesn't reflect knowledge of a holy living God? Are we willing to humbly accept challenge ourselves? Because if not, then, then like these priests here, we're at risk of letting our people slip into dead religion. These questions matter. Malachi's audience is well on its way out of God's blessing and into his curse. Because they've lost sight of him. They've lost sight of the love that he's shown for them. How much he matters. And instead they're just living by stale, burdensome ritual. Churches slide into decline when they get stuck in a rut. When, when deep reflection on the living God isn't at the root of everything they do. When deep knowledge of Jesus isn't built and encouraged and taught. So for us together, what, what's the state of our worship? Are, are we pointing each other always towards the living God? Does that come up in our conversation? Are we recognising his name as great among the nations? We need to think on that and chew that over. Think through the way that we meet together or pray or teach the word or, or use music or share communion or serve the community or, or give or serve or evangelise. When we do these things, does it reflect a deep knowledge and love of our Saviour? 
Does it teach the people around us? Are these things pure and pleasing offerings on his table? Or are we slipping towards something more valid? There are challenges there to, to leaders and teachers and churches. And if you've got thoughts springing out of it, please do talk to us. Give us your ideas. Share them with us. Help us. But of course, it, it does spread down to us as individuals as well. So I'll ask, brother, sister, what's the state of your worship? How does your heart stand? Do you bring your very best before God? Do you offer everything day by day to him, knowing in faith that he is trustworthy, that he'll accept it and be gracious back to you? Where do you hold back? What's too much? Where do you give only what you can spare? Can I spare time each day to turn to God's word and prayer? Is that too much? Is it a grudging approach to financial giving? A feeling that you don't have enough to be able, or, or perhaps the sort of loveless direct debit each month that you resent slightly when you think about your budget? Is time and energy a sticking point for you? Are there things that you're just not prepared to commit to and serve in, whether it's inside or outside church? Does it manifest as a cynicism of worship? An unwillingness to commit yourself to singing God's praises, a scepticism about the point of communion or the impact of teaching or the value of prayer, because what does it achieve? Where are the blessings for me? I can't see God's evidence of love in my life. Does it manifest as a reticence towards emotional investment in church and God's people? Because let's be honest, if you take Christian fellowship beyond superficial friendship, most of us are pretty hard work. Or is it that prideful frustration that others aren't as engaged as us. I'm carrying the weight. Why aren't they? Are my best sacrifices actually on my own altar like that? Or do I hold them back altogether? Devote them to career, or family, or social life, or something else? Do I give of myself willingly knowing confidently that God will pour out on me far more than I can imagine. What's the state of my worship? I'm much closer to these guys in verse 7 than I want to be. And what's so frustrating is that I've recognised that a thousand times. And while I might sometimes want to turn my life around and worship God fully, I'm like Israel hearing Malachi's message. My my track record on sticking to covenant is not good. Even if I do try, let's be honest, my my best sacrifice that I could bring before the Lord is like a, a blind or lame or diseased animal. 
Israel had offered those up year after year without change. The outlook's pretty gloomy, actually, in the Old Testament. There's hope in Malachi, but it's not clear how it's going to come together. But here's the thing. Verse 11. God says, My name will be great among the nations. And he's not going to be thwarted. It's the Lord Almighty who promises. Incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations. That can only point to one thing. With New Testament goggles on. That, that's talking about Jesus. A few hundred years after this, the priesthood hands over Jesus to the foreign governor. And the precious Lamb of God is offered up for his people on the hill outside Jerusalem. And as his blood is shed, as his body is broken, his people are released from the burden of this law. They're released from that, the guilt, the inadequacy, this burden of futile rituals that they've seen can never be enough to bring them into relationship with God that could never be enough to please him or require him to be gracious to them. Here's how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 10 has Day after day, every high priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Brothers and sisters, do you long to worship God? Our offering has been prepared for us. It's not down to my fragile efforts. Brothers and sisters, do you you long to be motivated to worship God? The key's there as well. Malachi's audience, they've lost sight of God. They've forgotten and defiled his name. But for us, that name, that character has been fully revealed. They saw it only only piecemeal. Hinted at in prophecies. But we get to fix our eyes on Jesus. We get to look fully on him. We get to let the knowledge of him dwell in our hearts by his spirit. We get to ponder anew every day that wonder of the cross and the things he's done and the ransom he's paid and really knowing the name of God and Jesus that is what will motivate me and you to worship him in spirit and truth. Fix your eyes on him. If you read Paul's letters 
he writes something about that in, in lots of them. I toyed with Philippians versus Ephesians. I, I'm going to finish with Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, he says this. This is his prayer for them. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Let that be our prayer for each other. That we would be a church who know Jesus better, who know the greatness of his name, and who therefore are called and driven to live out his worship.